Let's go back to Philippians chapter one, and I'm not gonna read through the whole uh, Bible. I promise you I will get our, through the whole book. I promise you through the whole chapter, matter of fact. I promise you though that we will get to chapter two uh, next week, and that one will be about living a life worthy of the gospel. Man, that's so good, it's power packed. But let's uh, start in verse three. We're gonna go back to verse three. If you're with me, say I'm with you. And so what I want to do is I'm, I'm going to actually take this uh, next three verses, and this is going to be the launching pad. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go back in time to the origin story of how Paul even came to Philippi. Matter of fact, wrote a letter and why he's so joyful about the Philippians there, because there's so much here to preach off of. But it starts with this. I thank my God. In all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And this is so key. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul is actually looking back on his first interactions with the people of Philippi, and he's looking back with joy on his, in his heart, because as you will see, Paul has, he has joy because he never thought he would get to this point, okay? So we know that Jesus, uh, Paul has joy because of how he's defined his life, but the question that begs to be asked in verse 4 is why does Paul have joy as he thinks about the Philippian church? Well, the first thing that we have to know is that Paul is in prison in Rome when he is writing this letter. He's in prison in Rome, but how did he get to Rome? How did he get in prison in Rome? Well, that in and of itself is an incredible journey, okay? Paul, uh, what you need to know about Paul is Paul always wanted to visit Rome, but he did not want to land in Rome. He wanted to have a pit stop in Rome because ultimately where he wanted to go is Spain. And so we see that in Romans chapter 15. Paul is in Corinth. Please allow me to do the backstory, but there's going to be preaching points in this. But Paul is in Corinth when he writes the book of Romans. He's in Corinth, and he is basically in Romans chapter 15, I believe it's 22 through 25, he talks, I'm not going to go there, but he talks about how he has a desire where Jesus has never been named. He has a desire to go and preach Jesus where Jesus has never been mentioned. That's why he wants to go to Spain, and that's why he wants to go to Rome. But there are a few believers in Rome that he writes the book of Romans to. And basically the essence of what his book, uh, the book of Romans is, is I'm sending you this letter because I just want to give you a precursor of what I'm going to talk about when I get there. That's what Romans is about. And so after he writes the book of Romans from Corinth, he actually is going to head back to Jerusalem. Fast forward to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 records the story of the journey from Corinth back to Jerusalem. The reason why he's going back to Jerusalem is because on his journey, his missionary journey through um, Galatia and through Asia and through what is known as Europe at this time, he has collected an offering for the poor back in Jerusalem. And he not only wants to go back to deliver that offering, but he wants to go back because he's close to Pentecost. And he's like, I got to be there for the Pentecost service. And so this is where Paul is. So Paul 
On his way back from Corinth, Acts 20 tells the story. He stops in a place called Miletus. And by this time, Paul, the Holy Spirit has been speaking to Paul. And Paul is in Miletus, and so Miletus is just south of Ephesus, where a church has been planted, where Timothy is a head pastor there. And so he sends for the elders to, uh, from Ephesus, and he has a sobering message for them. The sobering message is, I may never see you again. And the reason why he comes to that conclusion is because of what the Holy Spirit has been telling Paul. It says this in the Passion Translation in Acts 20, verse 22. I love this. He has this conversation with the elders, and he starts it out this way. Hey, guys, I love you, but I am captive to the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem without really knowing what will happen to me there. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, number one, I just want to let you know, I may never come back to your city, but here is why. Because I am captive to the Holy Spirit. What he is saying is that he has no other option but to do what God has asked him to do. I wonder what the kingdom would look like if that was the posture of every believer. I am captive to what the Holy Spirit wants me to do. The New American Standard says it this way. I am bound by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. See, this is the thing that's crazy about when he says, I'm captive to the Holy Spirit. One of the things that you have to understand is that Paul is not saying, I am controlled by the Holy Spirit to the point where I can't do anything that I want. But what he is saying is I have chosen to bind myself to what the Holy Spirit wants me to do. It was a voluntary act. He wasn't having, not having control of himself because here's the thing about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never violate your free will. He will never violate your free will to respond to him or to not. He won't violate it. But Paul's conclusion for his life is I am captive to the Holy Spirit. That is my choice. He's saying that he has no other option. What would it look like for people to live with such a conviction in their heart that to be led by the Holy Spirit, it is that they have no other option but to obey. Paul didn't have to go to Jerusalem. He could have chosen to run. He could have been like Jonah. Hey, I'm not really going to head there because, uh, I, you know, I'm just choosing to just kind of do my own thing. But it goes on to say that he didn't have, have to go to Jerusalem. He could have chosen to run to go the other way, but Paul lived with such a strong conviction. This is what brings me to my first point that I want to encourage and challenge everybody with. Those who make obedience to God's leading, their only option are the most effective people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? When you sit in a seat and you vacillate, you won't be effective. Obedience is what will make you effective. This was not a circumstantial choice for Paul. For Paul, there was no other option for him but to be surrendered to the destiny that God had for him. Because once again, for to Paul, to live was Christ and to die was gain. I want to encourage you to live your life making obedience your only option. Revival happens because of people being obedient. 
Charles Finney, one of the greatest revivalists ever to live, he defined revival this way. Revival is simply a return to obedience. When you love Jesus, when you first get saved, obedience is so easy because you're in love. Which is why we need to have encounters with the love of Jesus. When, when, you, when you don't have an encounter with, with, with the love of Jesus, you will see every command of Scripture, every prompting of the Holy Spirit as something you are obligated to do because you do not have a foundation of love. But when you have a foundation of love in your relationship, you see it as something you get to do and something that you want to do because you're so in love, the obedience is easy. We have to have these continual times where we are overwhelmed by the love of Jesus because that's what will sustain your obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit. One of the things I'll never forget in 2012 when we went to Africa on our mission trip, one of the biggest things that God showed me was this, is that often he will not reveal your purposes to you unless you have an encounter with him because he does not want you to be obligated to do something. He wants you to want to do something because you love him so much. So if you love Jesus, you have a head start on obedience. But if you have experienced Jesus' love, obedience comes easy. Because you, you, this, it's not a work thing. You, you're just so in love, you do it. And so we have to have that. Revival is simply a return to obedience. When God speaks, how quick are you to obey? I'll never forget, um, we have a dog, and I was going around our block, and uh, when I take my dog for a walk, it's not because I really care about his personal health, or her personal health, it's that I want her to wear, I want to wear her out physically, so she just lays by the AC vent and leaves everybody alone, <laughs> because if I don't do that, she'll eat everything, everything. I can't tell you how many fragments of things that are scattered throughout the yard. A UPS man cannot deliver a box and said it. She will grab it, take it out, and just chew it and just tear it up. And so I usually take her on walks for that purpose and that purpose alone. Well, on two of these walks, on the other side of the street, I saw a man walking with a cane. And both times... The Holy Spirit said, I want you to pray for that man. And I didn't do it. I didn't. I didn't do it because I was being selfish. I didn't do it because I was so concerned about the outcome. I didn't do it because I didn't think I had anything into me. Because I'm expecting, man, if I pray for this dude, he's going to be healed. But what if he's not healed? And so... That would be embarrassing. And so two times around, this is on two separate days, I see this man limping with a cane. And the Holy Spirit says, I want you to cross over the road. And then here's the thing. When God prompts you to do something out of obedience, how many of you develop a laundry list of justifications as to why you're not supposed to do it? So, well, I don't want my dog to just jump up on him and eat, eat his other leg. You know what I mean? <laughs> It's, all, it's always outlandish. Did I say that? 
He's watching right now. Welcome to the stream. No, but here's the thing. So I'm making up all these reasons why not to do it. And then I am on my walk with the dog and I'm praying that God would give me love for people. And here comes a man on the other side of the street limping that I've ignored twice. And here's what changed. God will give you compassion that will override your fear. You will have experiences if you start to pray, God use me, God send me, God give me a love for people, there will be a compassion that will rise up on the inside of you because of the grace of God empowering you to do it that will overcome your fear because up until that moment, there had been time and time again in other experiences where God had prompted me to do something, but because I'm so selfish and so focused on myself, which is really what fear's about, I don't have the right thing to say. What if this doesn't work? For, and it's all me, 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 but compassion will override fear. And I'm telling you, listen, when God drops compassion on you, you will no longer care about how you say anything. What the right thing to say will follow a overwhelmed heart of love for somebody. You won't be caught up on, well, how do I approach the person? Excuse me, sir. It will just flow out of you because you're not only in love with Jesus, but now you have this compassion on the inside of you that causes you to be so overwhelmed with love for the person that all you care about is not what you say, but that they experience Jesus' love in the moment. So I've got the dog with me, and this dog is a jumper. But I don't care anymore because obedience is easy when you're in love with Jesus and when you're in love with the people Jesus sends you to. And so I cross over and I find out that this guy's name is Leo. And Leo had a stroke that paralyzed that side of his body. And so now he walks with a limp. And I said, hey man, I said, listen, I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus and I believe that Jesus loves you. And is it okay if I just stand right here because I don't want my dog to jump on you is it okay if I stand right here and I just get, or I kneel down right here and I just pray that God would heal you and that you would be filled with the love of Jesus? And so I do that, I get up, and I leave. And the point is this, is that it did not matter what the results were. Because there will be other moments where there are results, but if I'm not obedient to that, that never happens because I will perpetually second-guess myself. How long does it take for you to respond just to be obedient? And let me just give you a piece of advice that I learned in that moment. You don't need to know why to obey. If you need to understand why, then you're making your obedience conditional 
and you are leveraging your ability to understand something against God, and that is rebellion. God, I need to understand before I ever do this what's supposed to happen, and then we don't do it. Can we all agree in the room? that we have all been on that side where it's like, I don't understand why I'm supposed to do this, and then you never do it. When we leverage our ability to understand why God is prompting our heart to do something instead of being obedient, it's actually rebellion because we're resisting yielding to the Holy Spirit. We cannot be so over-consumed by the outcome of our obedience that we do nothing. So we don't need to know why. When he speaks to you, when he nudges you in a direction, I want to encourage you to just do it. And listen, this is not a popular thing to do. Because what will happen is that it will confront in other people in the body of Christ the excuses that they have held on to that have caused them not to be obedient themselves. This will inspire and challenge our people. Paul said, I am captive to go to the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts chapter 20. I just want you to see what he says here. If you're with me, say I'm with you. Acts chapter 20, 22 through 24. He says, and now this is what he says to the Ephesian elders in Miletus. He says, and now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and affliction await me. Man, that is good news, huh? (laughs) How many of us, the Holy Spirit's like, hey, I want you to go to Jerusalem, but you're going to be in prison. That wasn't the Lord. (laughs) Because it's not encouraging, guys. This is, but when you're obedient, and you're in love with Jesus, and you've defined your life by that, it doesn't matter. He goes on to say, but I do, mm, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. What is, Jesus, what is Paul saying? He is confronting self-preservation. So that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul speaks with the elders. The elders are actually like, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. And Paul says, I'm going. And so what we see is Acts 21 through 28. 28, All those chapters are the events that happen after this that get him to Rome. Paul goes to Jerusalem. On his way, he's in Judea. There's a a female prophet named Agabus that grabs him by the belt and says, the man who wears this belt is going in chains. And he's like, I already know. You don't need to tell me again. So he goes there. Then he goes to Jerusalem. On one of the days while he's in Jerusalem, he meets with James, the head of the church of Jerusalem. After that, he, do, he gives all of the money away. Then after that, he goes and he preaches in the synagogue. Uh, the, the religious elite arrest Paul in the synagogue, and they put him in jail. While he's in jail, uh, he meets, or after he goes into jail, then uh, he goes to try, be tried before Ananias, the high, uh, high priest at the time. During that time, he's making his argument. He goes back into jail. They don't like Paul in the same way they don't like Jesus, so they devise a, pot, a plot to assassinate Paul while, he, while he's in jail. Paul's sister's son 
hears about the assassination plot, runs to Paul in prison and says, they're about to kill you. He tells his guards about that. They're like, we're going to relocate you. We're going to take you to Caesarea. So in Caesarea, he's tried before a guy named Felix. And in Caesarea, with Felix, he appeals to Caesar. What does that mean? You can only do that if you're a Roman citizen, which we know Paul was, because his father was Roman. So he's a Roman citizen. Now, I want you to, to catch this. Paul always wanted to go to Rome, didn't he? <laughs> what stipulations do you have between where you are and your prophetic word that you want to play out on how to get there? So he appeals to Caesar. And Caesar says, or uh, Felix says, you got to go to Rome. Now watch this. <laughs> Paul wants to go to Rome, and guess what God does? God actually funds his mission trip to Rome on Rome's dime. He doesn't have to raise any money now. Because when you're a Roman citizen and you appeal to Caesar... Rome has to pick up the tab on your traveling expenses to get to Rome. So here's Paul, has no understanding. Jesus has already talked to him. Hey, listen, uh, matter of fact, I, I skipped ahead, but in Acts 23, 11, it says while he's in prison in Jerusalem, Jesus appears right next to him and says, you've done an amazing job of witnessing Jerusalem. You're going to witness in Rome also, but I'm not going to tell you the details about how you'll get there. You'll stand before Felix, appeal to Caesar, get on a boat. You'll get shipwrecked and bitten by a venomous snake on Malta, and then you'll finally get there, and you won't be a church planter outside of a jail. You'll be a church planter in a jail in Rome. He doesn't tell him about all that, does he? <laughs> Paul, you have a desire to go to Rome? Here is my course for how you will get there. And so here Paul is in Rome, and he is in prison. But I love the fact that when you're obedient, God has multiple bank accounts that he can access to provide for when you, be, when you are obedient to him. Can I tell you something? And you know this, Pastor Dwight. God only has a responsibility to fund what he told you to do. <laughs> he only has a responsibility to provide for what he asked you to do. So when you do what you want to do, you might have to come up with all the provision. He told Paul, you're going to go to Rome, and you're not going to have to take and raise an offering in Jerusalem because you just dropped off an offering from the churches in Asia. But I'm going to work things out so that you'll get to Rome, and it'll just be on Rome's dime. Because I told you, you will witness in Rome in the same way that you witnessed in Jerusalem. The most effective people in the kingdom are those who are most obedient to what Jesus has to say. But once again, Paul is in prison in Rome. He's on house arrest. He's on house arrest for two years. And Paul plants churches on house arrest? How does that work? 
Here's how it works. This is point number two. This hit me so hard. Just because Paul is stuck in house arrest doesn't mean he isn't sent. What do I mean? Paul doesn't allow being stuck somewhere to stop him from being sent to someone. Do you feel stuck in life? Do you feel stuck at your job? Do you feel stuck in your neighborhood? Do you feel stuck in your family? Do you feel like you should be further along in your ministry? Like you should have a bigger platform, a larger reach. All of us have emotions that we will experience in seasons of our life where we feel stuck and we can't move forward. But let me challenge you to be sent in the very place that you feel stuck in. That's a different perspective. Paul made it his mission to reach as many people as possible with the message of Jesus from his house arrest. Listen, stop using the places that you feel stuck as the excuse to why you aren't sent. We will leverage the places that we feel stuck and say, well, you know what, God, if you would move me out of the situation, then maybe I would do something. No, 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 no. You need to change your paradigm. If you feel stuck, that needs to be a place that you start to feel, uh, you start to be sent to, where you start to reach the people in your job instead of trying to find another job. Instead of, my neighborhood is, I just, you know, I want to move out. Can I tell you, this is just the God honest truth. We look at houses all the time. Beyond the fact that we cannot afford any of the houses that we look at. <laughs> Allison will send me, and she'll be like, this is it. And I look it up, it's like 600 grand. I'm like, you are crazy. <laughs> She's got big faith, I guess. <laughs> but the, the reason went, went when I get beyond all of the outlandish ambitions of this new magnificent house, I realize we can't move because Gideon has friends that we're starting to invite to church. And we've got a neighbor that we're moving forward and telling about Jesus. We can't move. I, I may feel stuck because, you know, if I'm keeping up with all the Joneses, then I'm moving to Carroll. <laughs> or Baltimore, or I don't know. But you know what? We can't move. Because the place that we may feel stuck, I'm going to stop using as an excuse as why I'm not being sent to the people around me. If you want faithful, if you want to get promotion, be faithful in the place that you feel stuck. I love the fact that Paul is on house arrest, but he takes lemons and makes lemonade. He makes the most out of it, and he's like, this may not have been how I dreamed I would get to Rome, but nevertheless, even though I am in prison, I will still plant churches. That's being sent where you're stuck. 
Stop using those excuses. This is about being on a mission wherever you are. I'm going to talk about Jason. Jason wants to be, uh, Jason Dunbar, he wants to be in the Reynoldsburg School District. And I've talked to him time and time again, and he can get frustrated and feel like he's stuck. He's been trying to get in the Reynoldsburg School District for years. But one of the things that I love about Jason is Jason is reaching teenagers in his job. And he will tell me time and time again, I wish I got the job last year. I wish I got out of the district. But maybe it was God's will for me to still be here because I prayed for that kid. And I ministered to that kid. And I spoke to that teacher. And I, that is being someone who is being sent where they're stuck, making the most out of their situation. Jason is about to do a van route to the youth group with all of the neighborhood kids that come over just because he has a fridge stocked full of pop. Jason is a drive-through. You could go there, you got Coke, I got it. Mountain Dew, got it. He got the flavors that like Speedway don't even have. Like, bro, where'd you get that? Amazon? My God. And he talks about his neighborhood. I, you know, we thought about selling because the market is so high, but he's like, I can't. Because now we got all these kids coming over to the, 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 the house. And they're small. His, his living room is a decent size. But when you have 20 students on a small group night, it is really small but he's being sent where people could say they were stuck. We gotta be sent. So Paul, he's in this moment and he's stuck, but he's still sent. But love, I love what he says because the Philippian church hears, catches wind that Paul is in this place, that he's in Rome. Because once again, they did not have Facebook. Paul was not taking selfies in jail in Rome and sending them, direct messaging them to the heads of the church of Philippi. It takes a long time for the word to get to Philippi, but look at what verse 12 says, because Paul, this is the perspective of someone that is sent where they may feel stuck, where other people could feel stuck. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. You know who the Praetorian Guard was? The guards that guarded Caesar. <laughs> Paul's locked up and he's talking to guards like, hey, I'm here because of Jesus. Um, you may have never heard of him, but he was a guy in Jerusalem that uh, died on a cross. And he rose again, three, uh, miraculously, 500 people saw him. And uh, I used to persecute people that follow Jesus, but now I'm here. And I'm here because of him. And uh, I'm making the most of the opportunity. Listen, you have a hole in your soul. Only Jesus Christ can fill. That is God's son. And the whole time he's in jail, he's, he is preaching to the Praetorian Guard. <laughs> to the matter of fact, it goes as far later on, and I think it's in Acts that there are people in Caesar's family that convert to Christianity, although Nero, the one that killed Paul, didn't. But people around him. Maybe he killed him, finally, because he had relatives now that won't shut up about Jesus. 
be sent where you're stuck. And he says, the whole Praetorian Guard knows and that most of the brethren trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul is in prison with joy and what that is doing is it is overflowing and is contagious to the other people that are being persecuted. They're like, if Paul can plant churches in prison, I certainly can start to be one that starts to speak up and speak out and begin to be courageous and more bold with my faith. Just because he's stuck doesn't mean he still isn't sent. All right. So why in the world is Paul so joyful in remembering the Philippian church? Let's get back there. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, which is where we even started today. So Paul's in prison. He gets all the way there. He planted the church in Philippi 12 years before his imprisonment. And you want to know why he's so joyful about the Philippian church? Because 12 years later, there's a man named Epaphroditus from the Philippian church that tra travels 700 miles to deliver a gift to Paul in prison. And we see in Philippians chapter 4 that out of all the churches that he planted, Philippi was the only one to bring a gift. And now Paul is humbled at the reality that out of everywhere I went, this Philippian church is the one that says, we need to provide for Paul. And the reason why he's so humbled and so full of joy is because Paul didn't even plan on going to Philippi in the first place. Acts 16. Paul has a desire on his second missionary journey to go through Asia. Philippi is in Europe. Paul has no plan on going to Philippi. Paul is, I believe, in a place called Troas. And it says in Acts 16 that he is heading north through what is Asia, except for on one in one moment, God gives him a vision of a Macedonian man that is crying out for someone to come to their region to help help. And Acts 16 says that Paul concludes, this is where God is calling us to go. Paul had on his mind Asia. God had on his mind Europe. Let me tell you the third point, and this will probably be the final one. Now, I'm sorry I'm preaching so long. I got to get to Philippians chapter 2. <laughs> I want to talk about what happens when God pivots you. A pivot is a basketball term. It means that you have one foot planted, but you are redirecting yourself off of that pivot. Paul is planted in his calling, but he allows God to pivot the direction of it. And what you will see is something incredible. Paul determines, okay, we've got to go to Macedonia, but he has no other details but except to across the Aegean Sea and to go into northern Greece, which is called Macedonia. The Macedonian man ends up actually being a woman. Let me give you, and I'll, no gender confusion here, guys. <laughs> What I'm saying is that the manifestation of the direction of the Lord is not confined to your understanding. 
So Paul goes, and Macedonia means Philippi. He tries to go into the city of Philippi, but he can't even go and preach at a synagogue in Philippi because there's not even 10 Jewish men in the city to start a synagogue. So he determines, okay, well, I'm going to go down by the river. And he goes there to begin to pray. And at the river, he finds a woman named Lydia, and it says Lydia was a God-fearing woman. And he shares the gospel, and she gets converted. So he goes back with Lydia to her house and shares the gospel there. So Lydia gets converted. On another day, when he goes back down to the river to pray, by the way, he couldn't even have gone into Philippi because over the arches of the city was, there, is no, there was a prohibition against any unauthorized religion here. So he couldn't have gone in and talked about it. So he goes down to the river. The river is outside of the city gates. He preaches to Lydia. Lydia gets saved. The next day, he goes back down to the river to preach, and he comes across a fortune slave teller that he casts a demon out of, ruins a business, and then gets thrown in jail about it. He, goes to, he gets thrown in jail, and then there's a guard. At about midnight, Paul and Silas are singing hymns, praises to God. There's an earthquake that shakes. An angel opens up the door. The jailer's about to kill himself because if by Roman just Roman law and stuff. If you're a jailer and your people that are jailed, uh, your responsibility are, that are in jail, if they get out, you have to kill yourself or you're going to be killed. So he's about to kill himself. Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't kill yourself. Let me tell you about Jesus. He gets saved. That's it. The whole pivot of Paul from Asia to Europe to Philippi is two conversions. If we, if we determine to continue to move forward where God has redirected us based upon the first fruit, we might get deterred and discouraged and not continue to go. But one of the things that I, I want you to understand after Acts 16, it says that he goes on. And what you need to see about this pivot in this redirection is we cannot determine the success of our, our moment of being obedient to Jesus by the size of what happens. Two jailers or two people get saved in Philippi, and that is enough for Paul to leave. But if there is no Philippi, there's no Berea. If there is no Berea, there's no Thessalonica. If there is no Thessalonica, there's no Athens, and then there's no Corinth, and then there's no Ephesus. God had on his mind an entire continent when he gave him the Macedonian vision of a man because after all of that, in that region, you know what happens out of that? In, th in 320, Constantine, the emperor of Rome, declares Christianity the official religion of an empire. And it sweeps across Europe. And then hundreds of years later, there are people that start 13 colonies on the other side of the Atlantic because they want to practice religious freedom. I believe that the gateway to the entire West was, was Paul responding to a pivot and a redirection of God moving him into a place that he had no intention to going to don't judge the first fruit because size does not determine significance we live in a bigger better culture bigger better churches bigger better websites bigger better media all of it 
We have to stick our focus to the main thing. Where does God want us to go? Who does what God want us to reach? And we have to be willing to pivot. And I'm going to share a testimony. We're going to close. Listen, there was a pivot that happened in our youth ministry last year. We graduated 20 seniors in the middle of COVID. 20, it was the largest graduating class that we ever had. And here was the thing that, start, that, that was crazy, is in June of 2020, God starts speaking to me and says, you need to reset everything. Start it all over. Up until that point, that's all we had done. The way we were doing things, because this is what you have to understand. When God pivots you, don't judge the first fruit. Your responsibility is to be obedient to what God says, and he will take care of the rest. Size does not equal significance. You have to be willing to redirect, even though you stay planted. And so we start to pray, and then in the month of July, all of our youth leaders get together, and we start to pray, and we start to brainstorm. What is this going to look like? Because we graduated, listen, we had 32 students, and we graduated 20, so now a youth ministry of 32 starting the next year is going to be 12. That's it. <laughs> we had like nine youth leaders. It's like, okay, you get that person, you take that person, we'll just do this together. So we sense a pivot, even though we're planted, and we decide to go with whatever God wants because size does not equal significance. Fast forward one year later of taking off a Wednesday every single month, of only meeting one time in the youth sanctuary once a month, and then in small groups in homes two times, starting off uh, Wednesday, we had 35 students from 12. Don't judge the first fruit. Be obedient to what God asks you to do because here's the thing. He will provide for what he calls you to do. Will you stand with me? The most effective, if we look at the life of Paul, we will see a man that was totally surrendered to just be obedient to where God would take him. And one of the things that I want to say that I never got to is this, is that when God is using you, whatever your form of ministry, one of the reasons why he will pivot you is to ensure that your ministry is still his ministry. Because over time, we will be feel entitled to have more control over what we do. And so he'll, I'm just going to test your heart. I'm just going to see if you'll follow me. Because I want to make sure that the ministry that I put before you, that really was sourced for me, is still my ministry. The moment you get rigid and you get strict and you start to hold God to certain conditions, about what you're going to do, it has no longer been his ministry. It has become your ministry. But when you're surrendered and you're yielded, all you care about is obedience, not the outcome of it. So what is God in this moment, what is God asking you to be obedient in? That you've set aside, you've been, you've just like, ah, I'm afraid, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be stretched. I'm just telling you, take 
the step. Take the step. Pastor Dwight is all about the adventure of God. I'm not. But I'm trying to take the step. Be obedient. Leave the results up to Jesus. Don't allow your fear to override compassion because the words that come out of your mouth when you're talking to someone will be perfect when your, your heart is swelling with love for the person because you have the love of Jesus for them. So much in Philippians 1. Move on to Philippians 2. Will you bow your head and close your eyes? Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the layers in your word. God, all of the things that, God, you use to speak to us where we are, to touch our hearts, to transform us, to change our perspective and our paradigm and our, our mindsets. God, I pray, Lord Jesus, that, that we would take what we heard this morning and, God, that it would compel us to be obedient without hesitation, without delay, that we would not resist when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, tugs on our hearts, but God, that we would truly move forward in that. We would leave the results to you. God, we would not judge the first fruits of the endeavor, and we would not hold, hold ourselves back from your prompting because we want to know everything that will be required of us that we would just say yes and we would respond to the times where you pivot us, where we're planted, Father, to step into the things that you want us to do, God. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everybody said, amen. God bless you. We will see you next week for Philippians chapter 2, I promise.